Ladies and gentlemen. We're back down here in Porchville. How you doing? Cheers to you, buddy. It's America. (laughs) Oh, is for orgasm. Are you in now? Beautiful. Very pretty. Because I was on drugs. It sounds so dirty. PorchvillePod.com. Hell yeah! We are back down here in Porchville. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Porchville. I am here with, uh, I'm sorry, I just totally got distracted by that gigantic bird that just flew by all majestic-like. You missed it, Bob. I missed it. Ter- you missed, I missed it. it. Pterodactyl. I'm, he- I'm back here with uh, with my good friend Joe. Woo! My good friend Bob Smith. Yes, sir. The, uh, you may- Bob, do you remember which episode it was you did? Oh, my gosh. Way back when? I, I didn't have hair then either. <laughs> it was a while back. It was uh, three, two, three years ago? It was it was, it was was an awesome one. I remember yeah, we had that fun. One. We had a good time. I did, and too, because AJ was on. That's right. That's yeah. right. we got to talk Cameron. about him. we got to catch Nackins. up with him. Oh, yeah. And, and Cameron. Yep. Miss those guys. Cameron's in Denver. I know. Yeah. They're out there doing good things, man. And AJ's kicking butt. AJ's doing well. Mm-hmm. Mr. Scott Pfeiffer. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. First time in Portugal. Go ahead, pull that mic right up on closer? top of it. Yes, sir. That? Oh, that's perfect. How are you? I am doing fine. So, thanks. You, so you have come to Portugal to talk about uh, a book that Bob here. Uh, we we talked about getting together because, as I have mentioned, we took a little bit of a hiatus from Portugal for a while, about six months, and uh, this is our third episode back, um, and it was. Basically, because people like Bob, uh, people like Matt, guys that I've done shows with here in the last few weeks, uh, after not doing the show for a while, I run into them seemingly almost all within a couple of days of each other, and <laughs> and everybody's like, "Man, you gotta you gotta do some episodes. What's going on? Bring you know? it back." <laughs> and uh, so, Bob, thank you very much. The, oh. the the listeners of Porchville, thank you for uh, <laughs> for for bringing all all two of them. Carl, thanks you. Dave, thanks you. <laughs> Dave, thanks Thank you. you guys. That's right. Yeah. So welcome back. Scott, um, your book is called The Wendell Smith Reader, and that's what we're mainly here to talk about tonight. Um, now, tell me a little bit about this book. Tell me, tell me, as, as a layman where Wendell Smith is concerned, uh, what do I need to know about Wendell Smith? Who, who, who was he? He was a pioneer in several different ways. He originally uh, wrote for the Pittsburgh Courier, which was a black newspaper. So that's a weekly newspaper. And he wrote for them from 1937 through 1967. But about 1947, he moved out of Pittsburgh, went to Chicago, and began to write for the Chicago Herald American, which was a Hearst newspaper. So... That he really was one of the first black writers to write for a, to use the term, but a white newspaper. It was probably better to say an integrated right. newspaper, integrated readership. So that was one of the areas where it was first. What my book does not treat, because it can't, is his work in broadcast journalism, TV and radio. He really was a pioneer there, and that was in the 60s in Chicago. In Chicago, um, provided a lot of opportunity for him that Pittsburgh did not. He liked Pittsburgh, always always liked Pittsburgh, maintained ties there. But Chicago was just wide open 
for some of the things he wanted to do. So he was with WGN, uh, very good friends with Jack Brickhouse. Brickhouse was one of the uh, pallbearers at his funeral. Um, so what Wendell did really was he, he tended to be what I guess you would call a bridge. He had a lot of credibility in the black community, but he made a lot of friends in the white community. And one of the things I liked about one of the eulogies that was written about him, tribute columns, the guy said, and this, he died in 1972. So he said, this is an era. So 1972 is an era where a black man is supposed to wear a scowl on his face and be angry. And Wendell had the courage to wear a smile on his face and be happy. So he made a lot of progress um, because he maintained street cred, so to speak. But he also was considered to be a very reasonable person. And he loved to write about racial progress. I have a whole chapter in the book just called Progress. Awesome. I mean, he just wrote every. I mean, he loved it. He, he wanted racism gone. He didn't want it to be an issue that's around forever so you can raise money off it and things like that. He wanted it gone. So he had a lot of credibility. I, I thought he was a, about a straight shooter as you can get. Yeah. You know? What was it that led you to feel that you needed to write about him? I actually wanted to read a biography of him because he was a, a depicted in the movie 42 right. that came out, I think, around 2013. Um, so that sort of brought him to my attention. And then I read a couple of things where I re read some columns that were in various collections. Nothing was ever written about him specifically. But I thought, I want to I read a biography about this guy. And I couldn't find one. I even contacted the Jackie Robinson Foundation. They said, we don't think anything's been written. Wow. So my initial foray was to try and write a biography. But I, I didn't have the information to do that. And I later found out there were two other guys who tried to write a biography and had failed. One of them is the guy who wrote the introduction for this book, which is like a biosketch. He at least put together the information he had. So initially I wanted to do a, um, a biography, but then um, doing research on his columns. His columns were very accessible. He wrote over 1,500 pieces. So I thought, man, there's enough here to do a collection. <clears throat> Right. That's great. <clears throat> I'm a, a huge baseball fan, uh, particularly uh, vintage baseball. And I've got a book here in front of me, one of the best books I've ever read, baseball or otherwise. It's called Opening Day by a man named Jonathan Ng. And when I knew we were getting together today, I was like, let me brush up on Wendell Smith. <laughs> I have every faith. That's why I called you. You were my, you were my second call. As soon as, as soon as Bob called me and said, hey, we want to bring, bring him on, I said, well, I got to call Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I have to call Joe. And um, and this book does talk about <clears throat> uh, Wendell e extensively, and um, so to go back into the 1940s, um, where racial progress was—I uh, I can't say it was non-existent, but it, it certainly was not what we know and enjoy today. Blacks eating at you know their own restaurants, the colored water fountain, segregation—all all of that was commonplace. And Wendell Smith. And Scott, I'll certainly let you go into detail on it. Um, from what I understand, used his position, his very influential position in the Pittsburgh uh, paper, to drum up interest in integration in baseball. Baseball was the sport of the day, uh, even more so than football would be now. Really, mm -hmm. everything was uh, around baseball, and Wendell Smith was uh, smart enough to realize, hey, <clears throat> if we can get some black players... Uh, playing the American pastime, uh, then that's good for everyone. And he had met Jackie Robinson, uh, knew of Jackie's brother, Mac, who was uh, 
a famous Olympian. And uh, I guess a, a quote that kind of jumped out at me, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it, it's not that Jackie Robinson was the best black player at the time. You know, that probably would have been a Josh Gibson or a Satchel Page, but his he was the right the the right makeup. He he had a military uh, background. He uh, played football at UCLA, uh, an excellent athlete. And rather than <clears throat> uh, use his pulpit uh, with the Pittsburgh paper to to push hard. He would ghostwrite for Jackie Robinson in that historic season of 1947 and almost kind of downplay some of the abuse that Jackie took. And Wendell talked about how he, uh, he, he, he felt that, you know, if you were to have picketers and, and all this stuff and make it a thing that the, the great experiment would not have been as successful as it ultimately was. So I am uh, going to read your book, and I look forward to it. But I, I did get to uh, learn a, a good deal about Wendell Smith. So. I can absolutely attest that he will read that book, too. <laughs> this guy's got more books than most libraries that exist today, I swear to God. And they're all autobiographies about fascinating people and you know all this stuff. So Now, did I get most of that right? Please hey, say uh, yes. I didn't hear anything wrong. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> so when, when, when Smith... Because a lot of people thought Monty Irvin. Make sure you would bring be, that mic over in okay. front of you. Um, a lot of people thought Monty Irvin would be the first black player to to break the color barrier. Smith lived with Robinson f all through his first the only minor league season and in '47 as well, right? Correct. Um, what Joe said about Jackie being not the best player available in the Negro leagues is absolutely correct. Um. But Wendell was familiar with Jackie Robinson going all the way back to when Robinson played football at UCLA. He actually wrote about Jackie at that time. Didn't know him personally at that time. And, and what was generally argued in favor of integration what came from the commissioner's office, which was Commissioner Landis, who was no fan of integration, and the team owners. They basically said, look, we got no problem with having black players in, in Major League Baseball. There's no rule against it. But the players and the managers, they come from the South, and they won't tolerate it. So Wendell came out of college in 1937. So he's like about 22, 23 years old. 1938, 1939, he says, you know, I want to find out what these guys really think. So this is a young black man, maybe 25 years old. He doesn't even know if these white baseball players know him. But he lives in Pittsburgh. It's a National League city. All the white teams are coming through there. So he goes to the Shenley Hotel because he wasn't even permitted in the press box at Forbes Field. He goes to the Shenley Hotel, walks up to these guys, each team. And he had a column, a long column, and one of them is con included in the book. I chose the one with the St. Louis Cardinals. So... So it's in 1939, he walks up to Pepper Martin. Would you consider playing with a black player? Yeah, I have no problems with it. He walks up to Daffy Dean, uh, Dizzy Dean's brother, who initially didn't want to talk to him, but then talked to him. Would you play with a, bl a black player? Yeah, I just want to win. You know, it's basically what. So 75% of the respondents for those 
seven other teams in the National League, and then the eighth team being the Pirates because he interviewed them. 75% of the players said, yeah, I have no problems playing with them. 20% said we're indifferent. Only 5% were opposed. So there's a good example of journalism. Rather than listen to what somebody tells you somebody thinks, go find out what they think. And I'll point out, back in the 30s and 40s, you know, newspaper was it newspaper and radio because this is even pre-television that's how people learn that's how they gathered information and it's important for us here in 2023 to realize that uh how much weight how much impact newspapers had and uh, wendell you know with his uh pittsburgh courier was primarily read by by blacks by african-americans and it really got a lot of excitement for integration in the black community. And there was a, uh, a politician in Boston. I'm sure you, you – I'll let you take it from there. <laughs> yeah. Isidore Munchkin, I think is how you pronounce his name. And I'm not sure if he initiated the contact with Wendell or vice versa, but Munchkin wanted to be reelected, and he wanted the black vote. So he basically told the Boston Braves and the Boston Red Sox, if you guys would like to play Sunday baseball, and they would, because that was a big money day, sure. you will give a black player a tryout. So Wendell put this together. He chose Jackie Robinson, Sam Jethro, and a guy named Marvin Williams, who I had never heard of. Now, I know Sam Jethro went on to have a decent major league career, actually with the Boston Braves. Mm-hmm. So... The Boston Braves were conveniently absent at the time of the tryouts. And it also coincided with the death of FDR. So President Roosevelt's death really stole the limelight away from this story. But the Red Sox did give him a tryout. They gave Robinson, Jethro, and Williams a tryout. And it was basically just, they, they were going through the motions. They had to do it. They wanted to play Sunday baseball. Supposedly, the players performed well. They said, you'll hear from us. They never did. Wendell followed up a couple of times, and it, it went nowhere. But at least it was considered some measure of progress. The funny thing is that I was curious of what happened with Marvin Williams. And Wendell would return to that story, tell that story in, in basically the same form. But one time when he was telling the story, he said that Marvin Williams was actually one of the few players in professional baseball in 1952 to bat 400 in the minor leagues. And he did it in the Arizona-Texas League, which was probably like a high class A caliber league. It so happened that my dad wanted to be a major league umpire. And he went to Bill McGowan's umpiring school down in Daytona Beach and got assigned to the Arizona-Texas League in 1952. So I actually have a little card where my dad threw out the manager of the Phoenix team, the game was played in Chihuahua, Mexico. There was a team in the Arizona-Texas League. Chihuahua had a team. Hmm. Marvin Williams was on that team. So I know my dad saw Marvin Williams play. But that was an umpire. He saw him hit 400 at various wow. times during the course of eight years. So that's that's really amazing. Cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I, just, I stumbled into that. My dad had passed away by the time I wrote this book. I found that card in his file, so I knew he, 1952, he was umpiring there. And then I found out Marvin Williams hit 400 that year, and here it's in Wendell's column. I mean, wow. an incredible tie-in. And one That's thing a, I said to is. Nick before you guys got here was Sam Jethro, 
you know, was the rookie of the year for the National League in 1950, yeah. but the Red Sox were the last team to integrate in baseball. Yeah, Pumpsy they Green. Were. Right, Pumpsy Green, right? 1959, yeah. that is correct. Yep. And, I mean, and how did that, do you think, uh, ebb the growth of their team, you know, not going with a, a black player for yeah. as long as they did? In 1945, they were good, right? Mm-hmm. They made the World Series in 46. By the 1950s, they were pretty lousy. It would have helped to have Jackie. But the one, the Boston Braves were the ones who really dropped the ball because Branch Rickey ended up signing Sam Jethro for a song. Boston Braves bought Sam Jethro from Branch Rickey for about $200,000. Wow. <laughs> so they were conveniently absent, and it cost them $200,000. They could have had him... Couple years earlier, for a lot less money. And what Joe said about his 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 stance on integration, I didn't realize until I did some research about him. He was instrumental in, in integrating spring training, more so spring training even than Major League Baseball, because there were a lot of people arguing in favor of integration of Major League Baseball for a long time. Right. And if you read Wendell's columns, he would continually return to that theme. You know, write a column arguing for integration of Major League Baseball. But then you got to write about other stuff because you don't know how long it's going to take to integrate, right? Right. So he was just one of many voices arguing for the integration of baseball. Where he really contributed was that survey of the players themselves to show you cannot say the players don't want integration. They're perfectly fine. I think think most players just want to win. And they want money back then, too. They're willing to do what, you know, if it means that I have to play with black players or they're, they're not going to care it's yeah. like i, I want to win i want to be the best and yeah. and that goes way back um yeah you know jackie robinson is obviously given credit for being the first uh black player uh broke integration but uh way back in <clears throat> i want to say the early 1900s john mcgraw of the giants the manager of the giants brought up a player called <clears throat> moses fleetwood walker who was black because he wanted to help his team win. And the New York Giants, this is the era of Christy Mathewson, they were winners, uh, but they wanted to win more. And he tried to pass off Moses Fleetwood Walker as a Native American. <laughs> and it kind of sort of worked until it didn't. That's great. <laughs> but that just, Take a shot. What are you going to do? And, yeah. uh, you know, Babe Ruth, uh, he, he was suspended from Major League Baseball uh, because he would go and barnstorm with black players uh, there was definitely an appetite, as you would expect amongst competitors, yeah. to win. To yeah. win. So, who, what color is your skin? What's your favorite ice cream flavor? We don't care. Can you hit the curve? Yeah. All right, step into the box. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. That's exactly. Can it. we circle back to Bob's Absolutely. point about Absolutely. spring training? Um, spring training was different for Wendell than integration of baseball. Like I said, the integration of baseball was a marathon, basically. Spring training was a sprint. And the difference was 1954, Brown versus Board. Okay? At that point, that's the law now. And spring training facilities were in violation of the law. All right, now what is what is Brown versus Board? Give me give me a... Of education. That's that's segregation. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, 1954 basically said separate but equal is unconstitutional. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, So that meant separate but equal facilities in the South were in violation of Brown versus Board if it could be extended that far, which it was. Yeah. So... Prior to that, the law really wasn't on Wendell's side and everybody else's side arguing for the integration of Major League Baseball. They were just saying it's a good idea, it's fair, it's more the American way. 
but Brown versus Board meant the walls on your side. Now you're not asking. Right. Now you're now you're kicking down the door. You're not knocking and being played anymore. You don't have to be. Yep. So he was a one man gang trying to get spring training integrated. He tried to go through the players to the extent they ha- they had a they had an association. It wasn't anything like the players union today. But Bill Bruton, the center fielder for the uh, for the Milwaukee Braves, sure. um, he was one of the player reps. So he was trying to get go through the system quietly, which was Wendell's way. He wasn't a grandstander, and he just couldn't get anybody out in front of this issue. So finally, he said to heck with it. And he just this time he didn't write an occasional column. He wrote column after column after column, saying you can't do this. Right. And uh, one of one of the guys who uh, wrote a tribute column to him after he died said, really, he should have gotten a Pulitzer Prize for that. That's mm. the kind of journalism that should get you a Pulitzer. Yeah. But he, but he, he, you could almost argue that he single-handedly forced. It would eventually have changed, obviously. But to get it to change as rapidly as he did it, he almost did that single-handedly. And and Bill Veck was the first owner to to say all the players are going to stay in the same hotel with the White Sox, correct? Well, the way Bill Bill Veck did it, he bought the hotel. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. That's what he did. That'll yeah. work. So, <laughs> right. Yeah, and, and the Dodgers they had Vero Beach, so they had their own Dodger facility town. there, so they could do what they wanted. But um, Wendell was really vocal. That's one of the few times I heard him or I read him to use the term um, Uncle Tom's and Fat Cats to describe the major league stars who didn't want to get out in front of that issue. Now, he really liked Willie Mays. He really liked Ernie Banks. He really liked Hank Aaron. But that's who he's talking about. Yeah. And he behind the scenes, the, the players were telling him, look, it's just six weeks. We hate it. But it's six weeks of the year. And his comment was, yeah, six weeks of the year for you. It's 52 weeks of the year for the folks who have to live down there. Yeah. Don't have the money to move out. Right. So he was. A, so that's where Wendell was very conscious of the everyday guy, you know. And uh, he had the balance a- approach. He knew when to be really vocal, really forceful, and also when the wind was blowing in your direction, you don't have to be a grandstander. You can give people the opportunity to do the right thing because they want to. He much preferred that way. Yeah. But if you had to force it, sometimes you got kicked down the door. Sometimes. You got to get a little loud. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting. We were talking uh, about the Boston Red Sox being last to integrate, uh, waiting until 1959. The AL as a whole uh, was far uh, behind the National League <clears throat> in integration, even though Larry Dolby was short to join the the Cleveland Indians after Robinson. But just as a whole, the AL did not integrate. And Two other books I have read uh, that I enjoy, two baseball autobiographies. I'm a huge New York Yankee fan, so The Mick by Mickey Mantle mm-hmm. is a must read. Uh, in 1991, you brought up Hank Aaron. His book, I Had a Hammer, came out. And I got that, and it is a must read. And it is so interesting to hear their per- perspectives on the All-Star Game, the annual uh, game between the American League and the National League. For players like <clears throat> Hank Aaron and Willie McCovey and the and the rest, Ernie Banks, it, it meant a lot because they knew that the AL was kind of dragging their feet and they kind of had an unspoken, hey, let's go hard. Let's win this. We're playing for, 
for, for a lot more than a game. Mantle, on the other hand, has his <laughs> reputation. Uh, he thought it was a, a great, great time to hang out with the boys and throw a few back. <laughs> Mantle was uh, far more concerned with the World Series because, and this is another uh, dramatic change from today's world and, and, and today's baseball versus back then, it, the World Series paycheck was a significant sum, of a significant portion of the players' salaries. This is an era where even star players like a Yogi Berra or a Phil Rizzuto, both of whom would become Hall of Famers, they had side jobs. Like when the season was over, oh, they yeah. went back yeah, home absolutely. and they had a job. They yep. had to get a job. Now, if you were Mantle or, or DiMaggio, okay, but that was – the exception, not the rule. Now you got guys you don't even know picking up a $2.5 million <laughs> signing bonus, and good for them, but again, it's different back then. So Mantle was far more focused on the World Series, and when you look back through the records of the, the 50s and first part of the 60s, you see the NL won almost all the All-Star games, whereas the, the AL, and particularly the Yankees, really held it down during the World Series. So yeah. it's just interesting, two sets of eyes looking at the same things with uh, – Two very different perspectives. It's interesting. In your book, do you have reprint columns that he wrote? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's predominantly what the book is. And then I just intersperse some commentary when it's necessary to either put something in context or it's a judgment call. I want to make sure it doesn't become my opinion. I mean, the book, the people aren't reading the book to get my take on right. these issues. But sometimes you, you push it. I, I push the hardest in, uh, he wrote two columns about Al Dark um, in 1964. Do we have time? Okay. Yeah, we got, yeah. we got plenty of time, trust me. <laughs> now tell me, who, who's Al Dark? Okay, Al Dark, first of all, was a player who was one of the, was he the first rookie of the year? It was right around the time they came no, out. Al Dark, Jackie Robinson, Robinson was the first rookie of the year. Okay, well, in 1948, okay. Al Dark was a, was a rookie of the year okay. with the Boston Braves as a shortstop. Um, he then later, uh, he was traded soon thereafter to the Giants. So he was a shortstop on the 51 and 54 Giants team. So he's a really good player. Right. Not a Hall of Famer. In my view, I think he should be in the Hall as a player. Yeah. But then he became a coach and a manager. He was a good baseball man. He took over when Dick Williams, whether he was fired or let go right. by the Oakland A's, the A's. Um, Al Dark took over. Now, Dark... Um, and he, in between that time, he managed the San Francisco Giants. And I guess in 62 when they won, I think he was the manager and got him to the World Series. I think so, yeah. And they lost in seven games to the Yankees. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I just had to throw that out. <laughs> <laughs> William McCovey, line drive to Bobby, Bobby Richardson. Bobby Richardson, that's yeah. it. <laughs> so Al Dark's a controversial figure. He was from Louisiana, um, basically a born-again Christian, and in 1964, as manager of the Giants, he was interviewed by a guy from a New York paper. And he is alleged to have said that his black players were the best players athletic-wise. But they lacked um, intelligence and drive. So when that came out, the, guy's, the writer's name was Stan Isaacs. And Dark immediately said, I was misquoted. That's, that's not what I said. And Wendell hated racism, but one of the things he hated almost as much as racism was athletes who wouldn't stand by what they said. He was highly critical of Jackie Robinson for not doing that. Yeah. 
So he, he didn't care black or white. He hated that. And he wrote a column, and it's one of the things I was trying to think, is he angrier about what Dark is alleged to have said racially, or is he angrier as a journalist for Dark not standing by it? So that was his view of Dark in 64. The, the thing is that Jackie Robinson, one of the books he wrote, um, Baseball Has Done It, he has essays in there for mostly black guys, but some white guys too, who are very pro-integration and contribute to integration of baseball. He asked Al Dark to contribute to that. He liked Al Dark. So I, I, I know that that was one of the things that 64, you know, Wendell's hearing one thing that he thinks he knows Al Dark is a racist. Jackie Robinson's saying he's a good guy. And I, I interviewed Billy Williams for the book, who knew Al Dark pretty well and played for him uh, at the end of his career with the A's. And he said Dark was no racist. And I interviewed yeah. Kenny Holzman. Kenny Holzman said he treated everybody the same. So in 1970, when Dark is managing the Cleveland Indians, Wendell does another interview with him. And in the, in the comments, one of the coolest columns, and I have both in the book here, and I have them back-to-back so people can read them one right after the other. It's one I wrote, the mo- interjected myself the most into the book. Um, Wendell actually said, I wonder if I judge this guy based on his southern accent. Mm. Hmm. And I thought that was that's one of the things I most admired Wendell about to publicly say, I wonder if I'm part of the problem. Yeah. How many people are willing to say that, no, even no. in private, Not many. let alone in public, to say, I think I might have been wrong about this guy? Yeah. That's tremendous self-reflection. And, yeah. and most people, uh, seemingly especially today, <clears throat> well, lack that. Confronting one's own bias can yeah. always be a very difficult thing. So. And part of the problem yeah. you have in this is the issue of when you look at this stuff and say there's only two categories. There's racist and there's non-racist. So that means you're either Hitler or you're Jesus Christ. Most of us fall somewhere in the middle, Yeah, you know? Right. Preferably to the good guy side of it <laughs> and the bad guy side of it. Yes, <laughs> yes, preferably. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but you need more categories. I mean, probably if pushed with enough situational, ethical analysis, we probably all have some sort of racial bias. But we might be generally race colorblind. Right. But we just have some areas, you know. I mean, if you ask somebody, are you comfortable with a black president? That's one thing. Are you comfortable with a black son or daughter-in-law? That might be another thing. You know what I mean? So just it depends. But when you're just trying to put everything in two categories, it doesn't work. Sure. Yeah. So I I, uh, I want to throw something uh, your way. I we had talked about Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner who is, I don't want to say credited. I, I guess, you know, a lot of people give him blame for kind of upholding uh, integration, or, or excuse me, um, the, the split uh, and not allowing uh, players of color to play. There was a, um, <clears throat> and I, I don't know all the details, so I'm hoping you can help out. There was a situation that Wendell had somehow convinced Kennesaw Mountain Landis and the owners of the MLB clubs to witness a presentation uh, where he advocated for the inclusion of uh, black players in MLB. And apparently it went very well, but at the end... Landis said, no, we're not going to discuss this. And that is where Wendell 
sort of noticed Branch Ricky leaning in, and and that is kind of the, I guess, the genesis of it. Is, is that accurate? Yep, that, that's accurate. And I think um, they ended up getting Paul Robeson to come in and talk as that's well. That's right, that's right. Um, so it's one of the things, though, and this is where it gets shaky. If you were trying to convict Judge Landis in a court of law, you don't have enough to convict him. You've got circumstantial evidence. But it's also one of the things everybody knew. Judge Landis was a very powerful man. If he wanted integrate baseball integrated, it was going to be integrated. He conveniently dragged his feet on it. You know what? What's ironic though about that was now you're a Yankee fan, so you remember Tom Tresh, right? Of course. Okay, Tom Tresh's father, Mike, was a major league catcher for the White Sox and the Indians. He's from Detroit. He was a catcher on Wendell Smith's American Legion baseball team, which was integrated in Detroit. And Wendell, in a championship game, beat a guy one to nothing. That and a scout was at the game, a guy named Wish Egan. He signed Mike Trash. He signed the opposing pitcher and said to Wendell, I'd like to sign you too, but you're the wrong color. Yeah. So, yeah. But so Mike Trash, Tom Trash's father, was actually in the locker room a lot during the Yankee games because I had a chance to talk to Al Downing, and Al Downing started his career with the Yanks. So everybody thinks in terms of Branch Rickey as being the great emancipator, right? And Judge Landis is the equivalent of the plantation owner. But the, when Branch Rickey came up with the farm system, he used what, what they would call cover up a player. So in other words, Mike Tresh was an example. They didn't need him um, with, I think he started out with the Taggers, I believe. They, they were adequately staffed at catcher. But they knew Mike Tresh was a major league caliber catcher. So they covered him up so as not to let anybody else get him. Didn't they do the same thing, the Brooklyn Dodgers with Roberto Clemente? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So so that that was called covering up a player. So Branch Rickey really was the guy who covered up a player. Huh. And Judge Landis busted that open. And 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 this was one of the early attempts to in the best interest of baseball, you want the best talent to get there. A team should have a certain amount of time to get him there, but they have that now, right? I mean, you can only call up a player and send him down a certain amount of times. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, what is it, is it five years or something? If you don't bring them up, somebody can take him. They have, they have provisions of that to prevent covering up, even now. What's interesting about Clemente with, with Ricky is the Dodgers got Clemente. And the next year when O'Malley got Ricky out, Ricky ended up in Pittsburgh, and the first person he took was Clemente. <laughs> I did not realize yeah. that. Yeah, and so because O'Malley, there was a power struggle, and when O'Malley took over the Dodgers, was able to take the Dodgers over, Ricky basically was out. The Pirates hired him as their general manager, and the first player he got from the Dodgers was Clemente. That's a nice pick. And for listeners who don't know who Branch Ricky is and how he ties in, he was the the owner, the, the, the guy in charge of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who, of course, would eventually sign and play Jackie Robinson. For listeners and for people sitting at this very table <laughs> who may not know. <laughs> Mainly me. So, so, <laughs> so how, how the one thing I didn't realize, Scott, until I started reading about Wendell Smith, after baseball, he became a, a, a boxing, uh, covered boxing as well, right? Yeah, he was actually brought to the, when he went to Chicago with the Chicago Herald American, he actually was brought there to be the boxing guy. 
So how, in your book, you, you cover, obviously, throughout his whole career as a journalist. Do you have other stories other than baseball in your book? Oh, yeah. Um, if, if you ask Wendell who he thought the most important athlete he covered was, he would tell Joe you Joe Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. Joe Lewis, no question. He said, there would have been no Jackie Robinson without Joe Lewis. So he's not saying baseball wouldn't have been integrated. He's saying it would have taken longer. And Jackie was, what, like 26 Mm-hmm. When he entered in his rookie year or whatever, one or two years more is too late for Jackie. Absolutely. Yep. And um, and Joe Lewis also supposedly was instrumental in getting Jackie Robinson out of trouble when he was court-martialed when Jackie was in the service. So and and Joe Lewis and Jackie were good friends, but but Joe came before Jackie, and Joe also as a heavyweight champion of the world. That wasn't just a sports thing. That was a real American status indeed, thing. Indeed, And there was the issue of Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight mm-hmm. champion, who behaved in an uh, adventurous way, was not considered to be a good role model. And then that was the argument, see, we can't have a black heavyweight champion. <coughs> and He's a bad role model. If I can jump in on Jack Johnson, not only did he offend, quote-unquote, white society with drinking and dating white women, uh, blacks were not a fan of him either because when he became the world heavyweight champion, he ducked challengers. He uh, he was not uh, he might have been a fine fighter, but he uh, was was not a good champion. And there's controversy when he ultimately lost the title that he threw that fight. So, mm, yep. <laughs> and really quick, Joe Lewis. Um, back in the 1930s, uh, as a black star, he was a a not just a big boxing star. He was an American hero yeah, because yeah, exactly. he fought Max Schmeling, who was a German. This is, you know, in the era of Nazis. So it really was, you know, Joe Lewis representing America against the evil Nazis. And Joe Lewis won. So the, first, the second time, the second time, the first time he lost to him. I'll defer to you. He fought him twice. Oh, okay. And the first time he lost, it was a big deal. And then when... Schmeling was the champion. That's when Lewis. When, am I am I right no, about you're right. that? Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm not trying to correct you. I'm just because he got. Well, well cha- please do because I I I was not aware of that. Yeah, he fought yeah. him twice. He and he was undefeated. Lewis was undefeated, and I don't know if he took the fight lightly or whatever. But Schmeling beat him. Uh-huh. But in the second fight, if you and that's one of the great things YouTube is great for is seeing old fights, old baseball games, listening to old broadcasts. Watch the fight, the second fight with Schmeling, because. Lewis hits him so hard, he screams like a girl. I mean, wow. for real. It doesn't, it's, it's, it doesn't take long. No, it doesn't take very long. All it takes him apart real quick. They said Joe Lewis could break your rib with a two and a half inch. <laughs> That's how, how strong he was with his. Yeah, but he fought him twice. But you, but you said the key thing. I mean, Joe Lewis was an American hero, not, right. not a, just a black hero. He was an American hero. And, and that also, there was a guy when Dempsey was champion, a guy, Harry Willis, was considered a. Uh, formidable challenger for the heavyweight champion but Willis was black and Dempsey ducked him hmm. and that was one of the things that Jackie Robinson then was very conscious of he saw what Jack Johnson's behavior did to Harry Willis he didn't want Jackie Robinson's behavior to be a liability to future black players so he knew he bore that on his shoulders as well as everything else so that was that was critical but Joe Lewis was the guy, and 
Wendell not only respected Joe Lewis, he liked Joe Lewis. He always respected Jackie Robinson. I don't think he necessarily liked Jackie Robinson. All Is the time. that right? Wow. Jackie was a very difficult guy to get along with. I, mean, I had enough. I had a chance to do a lot of interviews with people, and uh, he was tough to get along with. How uh, was it? Because he was kind of set in his ways. I know he had that military background. Um, he was. First of all, he wasn't a real social guy. Sal Magley, the pitcher. Yeah, the Don, barber. Yeah, because he, he ended his later years, he was with the Dodgers, right? And he said, Jackie's the kind of guy that he'll he'll come up to you after a game that you pitch well, and he'll shake your hand and say, you know, good job. But he won't he won't hang out with the guys. Hmm. That's what they were talking about. Who would be the first black manager? Mm-hmm. And... Uh, People were saying, people knew Jackie said, I don't think he'll be a real good manager. He can't handle players. You know, he doesn't have the personal. Roy Campanella was the guy. And, uh, but for his accident, um, you know, he probably would have been the first black manager. If, he, if it would have happened today, given our attitudes towards disabilities, Campy probably could have still managed even being sure. a paraplegia. Mm-hmm. You know, but back then it was deemed to be something that, that he couldn't surmount. But yeah, but Jackie, um, you, you could respect him. It wasn't hard to respect him, but it was hard to like him. You know, when he passed on in, uh, I think it was 1972, his wife uh, was interviewed not long after, and she was uh, made some points about Jackie feeling uh, disappointed, um, maybe a little let down, because apparently he was in the Oakland A's locker room uh, previous to a game, and I guess he kind of expected... You know, the Reggie Jacksons and the other uh, star black players, Vita Blue, uh, to come up and, you know, hey, it's Jackie Robinson. Hey, man, thanks for all you did for us. And they kind of didn't. So I wonder if that is uh, a a bit of a tie. And and then, like you said, uh, at that point, Jackie's perceived um, graciousness was looked upon almost as weakness um, when, in fact, it was anything but. Yeah, Vita Blue, I actually had a chance to talk to Vita Blue, and he just passed away right. a few weeks ago. And he, he did attend Jackie's funeral because um, he said you know, he had an appreciation for what he did. So um, Vita Blue is a really cool guy to talk to. Because <laughs> he played for Frank Robinson with the Giants. In San Francisco. Right? Oh, okay. so, cause I, so I actually could ask him directly, you know, how'd you, would you prefer to play for a black manager? First of all, he described Robinson as crazy. <laughs> so, uh-huh. <laughs> well, Frank Robinson could be a tough guy too. Yeah, sure. He wasn't exactly. Um, but he said he, he what is it? He didn't really prefer so much. To, he didn't really care about the color of the manager. But sometimes, um, if he's being interviewed, he might feel more comfortable talking to a black journalist. Huh. Because he wouldn't necessarily feel like he had to explain the context of his comments. So I can might just understand that a little better. I can believe that. Um, so one of our star players in today's game is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. All right, and this guy is a, a slugger. Now he can speak English, um, but his first language is Spanish, and he never gives interviews in English anymore. And I always kind of like would scratch my head. I'm like, dude, I know you know how to speak it. What's going on? Well, apparently his second year in the bigs, he came back looking uh, a little fluffy. Let's let's say mm-hmm. he had put on a few pounds. And 
did an interview in English, which is his second language, and said something to the effect of, uh, I need to go to the gym more. Uh, but it was reported as, I've been to the gym one time in the off season, and he caught a lot of heat for that. So I can see why a player might uh, feel more comfortable doing an interview with someone who's going to truly understand them. And that actually, that issue of being coming in overweight, Jackie always had a, Jackie Robinson always had a weight problem, and I think it was after his rookie year. And this is where supposedly there was a feud between Wendell and Jackie. What? Um, Look at me they, learning today. That they, that they didn't speak for a long time, which was, you know, sad. Now, Wendell's widow denies that it ever happened, but it's it's pretty well documented. And it's just nobody really knows exactly. It, it may not have been one thing, but when Jackie came into camp, like I said, I think it was after his rookie year, you know, you go on the, all these speaking tours, and Jackie tended to be heavy anyway. He comes in overweight. <coughs> And Branch Rickey and Leo DeRusha were not happy about it. And I know Wendell wrote about it, and some other guys might have. And this is, again, where Jackie comes in and says, ah, the press is making this blown us way out of proportion. It's no big deal. And that's where Wendell wrote a column called Mr. Robinson. And he addresses him as Mr. Robinson through the entire column. He says, you have been treated very well by the press. You could argue you would still be traipsing around the Negro Leagues without the press. Now, that hurt Jackie because he hated the Negro Leagues, the indignity of the Negro Leagues. So that column alone <laughs> would have been enough. Um, and, and I actually have a, a chapter on Jackie in there. And you'll see that, that the really cool thing about Jackie was he could block out everything. If you think of the pressure that guy was under, he could block out everything, including good advice. Mm. You, you know that story that I I did not know um, as far as the the feud with uh, he and Wendell. But so Robinson's first year was 1947. He won the Rookie of the Year. Yep. And yeah, his 1948 campaign was not the greatest, but he took it to heart. Came back in '49 in tip top shape and won the NL MVP award that year. So yeah, that that is kind of known that his uh, sophomore season was. Not a Hall of Fame caliber season. And, and one thing, too, about Wendell and Jackie Robinson, Wendell passed away only a month, basically, after Jackie from pancreatic cancer, but he wrote Jackie's obituary, correct? Right. Yeah. That's why um, when I was going to write a biography before I knew I couldn't, um, I was going to actually start it at the 1972 World Series because that's where Jackie's dying, throwing out the first pitch at the second game, and he was going to be dead within two weeks. Right. And Wendell's watching and writing Jackie's obituary while well, he's dying hmm. of pancreatic cancer. Now, that, they did reconcile later in life. Hmm. Um, but, you, you can t but to me, you know, when I read that, and, and again, that, that column, that tribute column to Jackie, the obit is, is in the book, that column oozes with respect and admiration. It does not ooze with friendship. Huh. Yeah, which isn't a negative thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, but when 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 Wendell wrote about Joe Lewis, you could tell he really bought into the guy. With with Jackie, Wendell knew enough to. What I'm, was I'm it? Never that, really going to be close to this. What guy. was it that really pushed them apart? Well, I don't think we know for sure. Yeah. But Jackie was very touchy. He took offense to criticism. You know, uh, he was very touchy about that. Very thin skinned. Yeah. 
Um, so that certainly was part of it. Um, there's also uh, the guy who wrote the uh, introduction. He he was able to interview a lot of people because he was he was doing research on Wendell for 25 years. Wow! So he talked to people 25 years ago who are no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, there was also the issue of the politics because Wendell was a Democrat, and Jackie was Republican, who I guess switched over eventually to be Democrat. But I mean, he supported Nixon in 1960, so. You don't know how much that came into play, you know. And, and actually, Wendell wrote a column criticizing, or somebody wrote a column criticizing Jackie for supporting Nixon. And Wendell wrote a personal letter in support of that position to criticize Jackie. See, Jackie has to understand the black community doesn't need him to give political advice. Right. But then Wendell wrote a later column back in, in 1971, towards the end of both their lives, where Jackie's come out. And again, that I have that in the book. Jackie comes out and he's campaigning with Jesse Jackson. And then it's okay yeah. for Jackie to say <laughs> who you should vote for. And so there's a little bit of a contradiction here with Wendell, too. You some, know? Things, and, some things never change. Cause you see, that? <laughs> you see yeah. that going on today. Yeah. But, uh, the, it's cool I, to use your voice, but I have my bring, opinion. <laughs> I try to bring that out. That <laughs> Wendell wasn't flawless either. So, I mean, yeah. his journalism was pretty good. But there were a couple of points in there, and I, I put them in the book where I say this wasn't his best day. Sure. You know? What was the process to, to go through? Uh, how hard was it to go through to come up with the, the columns you inserted in the book? And what was the process for doing it? Um, you, you can take an easy route when you do a reader, any present a collection, and just present it like chronologically um, or present it. By sport, because Wendell wrote primarily about boxing and baseball, but he wrote about a lot of other sports too. Um, so you can do it that way by sport. What I tried to do was say there was a book that uh, Christopher Hitchens, I'm a big fan of Christopher Hitchens, he wrote about George or- Orwell, and the title of the book was Why Does Orwell Matter? I think that's the greatest title of any book. So I said to myself, that question, why does Wendell Smith matter? What differentiates Wendell Smith from anybody else? And I thought, okay, I think you pointed out early on that newspapers were chroniclers of history. Yes. And particularly black newspapers, because back at this time, there were no black studies programs. There were no black history programs. So the, the black newspaper united the community, and the Pittsburgh Courier had like 11 editions nationwide. So they were... So one of the chapters is black history because Wendell wrote a lot about black history. And the way he wrote about it was different even than what you see portrayed in the movies now. Do you guys see the movie The Blind Side? Yeah. I have not. Yeah. I don't. Did you like I, it? I, I did. Joe, Joe's not a movie guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Obviously he likes books, but... but uh, saw, when saw, they move, not so much. I saw, I saw Cocaine Bear. But <laughs> what, what, I gotta see that. Was, That's highbrow stuff right there. What, was The Blind Side about... <clears throat> Sandra Bullock's character or Michael Orr? I mean, in the in the movie, I, I would have said Sandra Bullock. Yeah, and I love yeah. Sandra Bullock. Oh, I'm not yeah. complaining about anything about Sandra doesn't? Bullock. But Michael Orr, t- to me, when, when I look at that and I like the movie. I mean, from an emotional standpoint, I liked yeah. it. But basically, there's this white fairy godmother who came in and rescued Michael Orr. Yeah, and I heard he was not too thrilled about the overall He's sort of passive. Of he, yeah. He's a pass, very likable, but passive. Right. You know, so Wendell wrote about black guys in, in 
history who did things. Yeah. You know, who weren't reliant on a white fairy godmother or right. anything, you know? So that was important. So black history. He had the um, willingness to criticize people he liked. Like I said, calling out the William Mazes, the Ernie Bankses yeah. for their not going out front on the spring training issue. So I have a chapter called Friendly Fire. So he'll go after friends, you know? Yeah. Um, I have a history, um, a chapter on progress because, like I said, I mean, he loved to write about progress. You know, I have a lot of white friends. I'm from cent- South Central Pennsylvania, which is a very conservative area. And one of the criticisms they say, man, every time he, they make an advancement, the black population, civil rights, they won't acknowledge it. Yeah. Well, Wendell acknowledged it. Right. He got out front. He loved to write about it. Then there was a chapter on fighting racism and things where it was more directly confrontational. You know, so I so I try to look at that. What were the things about Wendell that, um, and also foreign affairs, because he had a uniquely uh, large experience in traveling for a young black man at that time, because he was friends with Abe Saperstein, who organized the Harlem Globetrotters. In fact, Wendell's oh, wow. wife worked for the Harlem Globetrotters when they moved to Chicago. So Wendell got to travel some with the Globetrotters. Now, wh- so, yeah. <clears throat> was Wendell instrumental in the, the two V's campaign? He, not in creating it, but certainly he was there at the court, and he took pride in it. He, he certainly supported it, but he didn't create it. That was more uh, Van, the uh, publisher of it. So the, <clears throat> just for people so who Let's don't recap know. that. <laughs> yeah. What's the two V's All campaign right. so, for us newbies in the back? Uh, no, so, <laughs> well, just talking about the power of uh, newspaper and how media was consumed back in this era, you know, newspaper and radio, and the black voice that a newspaper um, w- would represent, it gave the black community, like, a sense of power where they of didn't course. really have that um, in a lot of other places. So the two V's campaign was... A campaign because we had black soldiers fighting for our great nation, and the concept was when they come back, God willing, they come back, they should be entitled to the same benefits that our white soldiers enjoyed. And it took a push from spearheaded by black newspapers like the Courier to make that happen, and it did happen. So that's an example of how impactful and important newspaper was in our society back in the back in that era. Well, one thing that I think is interesting about newspapers, too, until the Kennedy assassination, people got their news basically from newspapers. They wanted to read it. They wanted yeah. to see it. And then when Kennedy was assassinated, the, that's when TV really took over. Right. Because that people were glued to their television sets for three or four days. Well, the TV is, is primarily given the... The, the reason that Kennedy won, just because how how much better he looked, he looked in on TV right. than, than Nixon. But but people wanted to read it. They did. It was almost as if people didn't believe it until right. they could see it in print. Yeah. And and today, you know, where we are today, associated, you know, <laughs> I see it in print, but I don't believe it. Scott, you had something earlier. It's you... hard to believe videos nowadays. You know, <laughs> I, I mean, deep fakes. You were talking about uh, <laughs> Alvin Dark and his comment, alleged comment in 1964, and how. You know, Wendell apparently just took that at face value. Well, it says it says you said it. So, and nowadays, uh, there is so much <clears throat> quote unquote fake news, or at least very spun, heavily spun news. My instinct in 2023, when I read uh, an outlandish statement, is to discredit it, to think, no, that can't be true, or it's taken out of context, it's misconstrued. 
Whereas back in, in this 1964, apparently Wendell read it, and that, that, that meant it happened just like that. Yeah, I don't know if he knew Stan Isaacs, the journalist who wrote it, but he, whatever, however he came about his opinion, he came about the opinion as Isaacs was a credible guy. And I don't know if that, if that also changed between hmm, 64 yep. and 70. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, that, that was, uh, I, I really thought a lot about that issue. I mean, this gets kind of into the weeds, but. Let's go hey, deep into the weeds. Bring on the weeds. Well, <laughs> let, let, I'm not, I would have to look to see who the black players on the 64 Giants were. But let's just say they're Willie Mays, Willie McCovey. Juan Marichal, Orlando Cepeda, yeah. and Maddie and Felipe Alou. Let's say there the, are six black players on the Giants, and they're the six black players. Right. And let's say Al Dark says to Stan Isaacs, you know, Maddie Alou, Felipe Alou, Orlando Cepeda, Juan Marichal, Willie McCovey, Willie Mays, they're my best players. They're not always the smartest, and they don't always put forth the best effort. And Stan Isaacson reports that and says, Al Dark says his black players are his best players, but they don't put the best effort, and they're not the smartest. Now, technically, since there are only six black players on the Giants, and Al Dark named all six of them, it is correct to say Al Dark said his black players were such and such. But they, he didn't say black players. He named them as individuals. Sure, right. When you then say black players, it's a correct paraphrase, but it implies that black has some influence on Yeah, it's just enough character. to put a negative twist yeah. to it. That, and it so yeah. you can have an honest difference. Of, but, then, but that sells papers, too. Well, yeah. and the way you resolve that is, do you put that in quotes right. or not? If, if he just says black players but doesn't put it in quotes, then you can say he's paraphrasing, perhaps misleadingly. Sure. But if he puts it in quotes, then it better be exactly what Dark said. And Dark, so. didn't Dark forbade the speaking of Spanish? He did. Um he did, and I think it was a team unity issue. You know, it's funny. Ken Holzman, I had a chance. I never talked to him. I emailed him a lot, mm-hmm. and he was really forthcoming on stuff. And his comment on Dark was, as far as players, Dark was totally colorblind. But now Ken Holzman was Jewish, and Dark, as I said, was a born again Christian. So in Dark's view, a Jew can't get into heaven. He likes Ken Holzman. He wants Holzman to get into heaven, so he kind of wanted to convert Holzman to Christianity. Now, that's inappropriate behavior in a workplace. Sure. I mean, you know, but it's not racism. Right. You know, unless he singles out a Jew. But if he, if he applies the same standard to a non-believer as he does to a Jew, then it's not anti-Semitism. Right. It's how he treats all non-believers. My, so you got to really be careful about this. Yeah. yeah. My, my very favorite, and this is somewhat lighthearted. My favorite Al Dark quote is, uh, you know, back in the back in the 1960s, that uh, this was before the designated hitter, so pitchers would hit. And Gaylord Perry, who played for decades, made it to the Hall of Fame, is a pitcher. Alvin Dark said, "Man, they'll land people on the moon before you hit a home run." Well, in 1969, just hours after. Neil Armstrong landed on the moon's surface. Stop it. Gaylord Perry hit his first and only home run of Stop his entire it. MLB That's career. Great. Get out of it. What? Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. One, one question, Scott. Uh, uh, when he, he left print to go to television, did he have the same – was he able to be afforded the same platform? Was he still the same kind of television journalist as he was as writer? Yeah. 
He did continue to write, though. Like, and okay. He, so he, he joined the Sun-Times. He had a column for the Sun-Times for a couple of years while he was doing a broadcast. Um, he actually ventured a little bit out of sports in his capacity in broadcast journalism. So they had sort of like a local meet the press. Mm-hmm. Um, so he actually interviewed George Wallace. Oh, wow. Um, he was supposedly one of the first, maybe the first reporter on the scene of the Richard Speck mass murders yep. in Chicago. Yep. So he actually got outside of um, just sports when he got into the sports journalism. They did a segment um, on different ethnicities in Chicago is in this like 65, 66 or something. And the first segment they did was on Polish people in Chicago, but the second one was the Negroes in Chicago. And Wendell produced that. So that was cutting edge in, in the 60s for a black journal, journalist to take that, um, take on that role. So, so it actually allowed him to get outside of sports. And he was the first black sports writer to be... Um in the Baseball Writers of America Association. Everybody says that, okay. not to pick on you, but that's not true. Okay. Twice in my book, I try and refute that, but he was the second. Sam Lacey was the first. Okay. This little shot of journalism here that I learned, uh, <laughs> it really frustrates me. At the Baseball Hall of Fame website, it says that Wendell was the first black member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. You would it think does. that's a credible source. I'm looking at it right here. Yeah. <laughs> now, do you know who runs the Baseball Hall of Fame? I do not. You think it's Major League Baseball, right? <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's the Baseball Writers Association of America. Okay? So They're the ones who know. run it. Yes. You would think that they would know who the first black member of their <laughs> own organization is. But it gets worse. So I, I actually... Originally, I had submitted the book not to McFarland Publishing, but to the University of Pittsburgh Press because I wanted to go through the academic process and have it peer-reviewed. One of the peer reviewers came back in criticism of the book and said, you know, the biography information at the Hall of Fame is better than what you have in your book. So I went to the Hall of Fame and said, well, actually, it's inaccurate. So I went to the Hall of Fame, back to the Hall of Fame, and say, I talked to a guy named Jack O'Connor on the phone. And told him, I said, I think you're wrong on that. I don't think Wendell was the first black member of the Baseball Writers Association. He acknowledged it was wrong. And we actually talked. He was a consultant in the movie 42. And he was talking about how many inaccuracies there were in the movie 42. Really? So he said, yeah, we'll be glad to change this. This was like five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) They move slow. (laughs) And the guy who wrote the introduction contacted him like within the last year or so. And said, hey, you know, this is wrong. And they said, you're right. We'll change it. So. <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, this is journalists. Still pending. These are journalists. So, uh, yeah, even though they're sports journalists, they're still journalists. They're trained in journalism. They come out of journalism yeah. school. So who is the first African-American? Sam Lacey. Sam Lacey. Okay. Yeah. Next time you're on Jeopardy, <laughs> now you know. <laughs> well, they might not have it right either. You might uh, have to. <laughs> That's true. So where can people get your book? Uh, they can get all over, um, you know, Amazon and all the standard things. They could go to McFarland website. Yeah, so it, it's pretty widely available now. Now, how long has it been out for? It's been out for a little bit over two months. How how well has it been received? I don't have sales statistics on it. Um, I know it's been out of stock at a couple of places. 
And I think we, we were on a um, a, a podcast um, for a, a guy who's a fairly popular radio host in Chicago, and then Scott Simon from NPR, his podcast. So I think that sort of hits sales a little uh-huh. bit. But no but Ferrari I, yet. No Ferrari <laughs> yet. Yeah, okay. There was okay. a, um, I saw we were like, in the all-time sales of Baseball-related books, I think, were like 2,248, though, but moving up. Here we come, baby. Just yeah. a bit outside. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're not done yet. We're, lo- we're looking for 2,243, I think, is where we can get. That's awesome. Now, um, it's uh, April 15th is celebrated league-wide as Jackie Robinson Day. It's the day he broke the color barrier. I wonder if you um, might be able to reach out to MLB because what you know obviously the Wendell Smith Jackie Robinson tie-in is you know it's almost custom made and they're they're looking for content. This seems right up their alley. Yeah, I did write to them and got a response. You know who was really responsive though? It just shocked me. Who's that? Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the White Sox. Hey. Um, I wrote to the owner early on when I started this thing. I knew nobody. I had no contacts. I knew nobody. So I was just writing letters to players. I got some interviews, like I said, you know, Ken Holzman, Vita Blue, those guys. Um, but amazingly, Jerry Reinsdorf happened to be a fan of Wendell Smith growing up. Wow. So he put me in touch with a guy from public relations with the White Sox who gave me a bunch of contacts, one of which was a guy named Ron Rappaport. Have you ever, he wrote a book on Ernie Banks a couple years ago. Yep. Huh. Ron's a pretty well-known journalist. He's retired now. But um, he was incredibly helpful to me, and he's actually been out. He's why we got on NPR and the Chicago thing, because he has ties. He loved he loved Wendell. He loves the book. So just you just never know. But but Jerry Reinsdorf was really one of the really influential guys. Um, nobody from Major League Baseball had any real interest in it. There's a a, a website community uh, called Seamheads. It's uh, really focused on Negro League baseball, and this book seems it would be right up their yeah, alley yeah. as well. well. That's why I went to McFarland Publishing. <coughs> McFarland is big on the Negro League, uh-huh. and so we're actually in July, July twentieth to twenty third. There's something called the Jerry Malloy Conference. And Jerry Malloy was a guy who did a lot of research in the Negro Leagues. He passed away prematurely, so they named the conference after him. Um, so that's going to be July 20 to 23 up in Detroit. They rotate the location. It'll be Detroit this year. So we, so Michael, the guy who wrote the introduction, I'll be doing a presentation on Wendell because he grew up in Detroit. So what was the influence of Detroit on Wendell? Wendell's father was actually a cook for um, Henry Ford. And Henry Ford um, was fairly liberal in his views, apparently, with having employees over to his home. Because Wendell was over to the Florida State and played baseball with Henry Ford's son and grandchildren, um, so so it you know, something like that, such an incredible experience for a young a young black kid to be at the Florida State playing with the Ford kids that has to make you sort of not be intimidated then yeah. by you know wealth and influence in America and somewhat a believer in at least the potential. For things to get better, did, did, he's from Detroit. Did, was he? And you talked about Joe Lewis connection. Was he friends with Sugar Ray Robinson at all? Did you talk about him at all? Uh, he he is a good example. A guy he highly respected Sugar Ray Robinson's boxing skills. Mm-hmm. 
but Sugar Ray was a very shrewd businessman who would use the media as he saw fit. At times he could be very friendly. At times he could be very off-putting. So Wendell was always respectful of Sugar Ray's ability, but never really, there was always such a guard between them, you know, which was totally unlike Joe Lewis, who had no real barriers. Hmm. Uh, and it was funny because one of the things I write about in there is Sugar Ray and Joe Lewis, arguably two of the greatest boxers in history, right? Very different people. Yes. Totally different people. Joe was very friendly, very humble. Sugar Ray was a showman. Um, it was all about the buck. Yep. And Sugar Ray had a huge entourage, mm-hmm. as did Joe Lewis. And in the end, they wound up the same place, broke. Yeah. You know? And it got there two different ways. But I did have a chance to talk to Joe Lewis's son, Joe Barrow, who was in, he's uh, instrumental in the uh, first tee to get a, uh, um, black is interested in golf. So he was at, and he was talking about his, his dad, more in relation to Muhammad Ali, which uh, I guess initially Muhammad Ali kind of viewed Joe Lewis as an Uncle Tom. Mm-hmm. But eventually he became, he changed his opinion on that, and Lewis and Ali had a productive relationship. Definitely curious what Wendell thought about Muhammad Ali. I mean, yeah, Muhammad I have a whole Ali chapter, had a yeah. huge, you know, culture, just everything around him in, in the time that, you know, yeah, I, I think that's one of the coolest relationships. Yeah. Right? And I do have a whole chapter on Ali. Um, initially, it, it really starts off uh, before the fight with Sonny Liston. Wendell not only thought that Liston was going to beat Ali, he thought he was going to hurt Ali mm-hmm. because Ali was mouthing off. And Wendell was well-connected in the uh, boxing trainer community. And they basically said, this guy hasn't improved since the 60 Olympics. He's going to get killed. And so Wendell didn't even have respect for him as a fighter. So initially then he had to at least take him more seriously as a fighter. But um, he also didn't like the braggadocious nature of Ali. He thought heavyweight champion again. That turned a lot of people off in general. Well, Joe Lewis was his guy too, right? I mean, if you think about it, as you get older, now you guys are younger than Bob and I. I mean, Bob and I are, what, 61, right? I'm 62. 62, Mm -hmm. all right. I'll be 63. Yeah. yeah. You guys look great. You, guys look great. <laughs> you, you hope. You don't look a day under <laughs> 62, Bob. Vegas <laughs> <laughs> has odds on you making 63, and I'm taking yeah. the under. 63, uh, hopefully. <laughs> but but when you think about it, but you guys were old enough to, you, you knew the players, the athletes that you liked growing up. And probably the sports you're watching now are different. I mean, baseball, Joe, you obviously, you know the difference between what it was like in the 1960s and 70s and what it's like now. So to make that adjustment is hard, you know? Like, I can't accept the closer. Really? To me, wow. <laughs> a, relief, a relief pitcher is a guy who comes in in a jam and gets out of it. He's not a guy who starts out with a clean slate and gets three outs, you know? I don't even really accept the DH. So it's hard for me when I look at guys in the Hall of Fame who are DHs or closers. You know, that's going to be hard for me. So for Wendell, he had a view of what the heavyweight champion was supposed to be, and it was Joe Lewis. Muhammad Ali is the antithesis of this, plus he didn't even think he was any good. Yeah. Well, eventually he had to acknowledge he was good. Right. And then when Ali was stripped of the title and all, Wendell then... And incidentally, Wendell was no fan of the Nation of Islam, um, the Black Panther Party, 
black power movement. He was more of the Martin Luther King guy. Right. So he didn't even like that either. But he said, hey, this is America, and you're supposed to be able to choose your religion. And if Ali's chosen Islam, that's his business, and you shouldn't be losing your title over this stuff and be persecuted for it. So Wendell took a very principled stand in support of Ali in that regard and then grudgingly came to respect his view as a fighter. And in 1971, uh, when Ali lost that the first Fraser ali fight, Wendell was the only reporter Ali allowed in his locker room. Really? And that shocked me Hmm. because I would never have thought... I could see Ali eventually. I mean, I I came to like him more as he aged and saw how he handled his Parkinson's and all this. And Bob said he was actually a a friendly guy for autographs and things like that. I got to meet him. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's way cool. So there's... There's reasons to, to maybe change your tune on Ali, but but you're talking sure. in 71 was still the height of his showmanship, his clowning act with Cosell, you know. And uh, for him to have the maturity to recognize what Wendell Smith was at that young age, at that point, his career really impressed me. And I thought, you know, I wonder if we really even knew Ali then. Hmm. I mean, yeah. You know, and, and Wendell really didn't like Cosell. Because Cassell wanted to be part of the news, Wendell thought a journalist is supposed to just report on the news, oh, right. right? You know, but and I, I would love to know what Ali really thought of Howard Cassell and Wendell Smith <laughs> in 1971. Well, you know, it's funny, and again, YouTube is great for this. If you go back and watch the Clay Liston fight, everyone, like Scott said, thought Ali or Clay was going to be destroyed by Liston. Liston said, "I'll get him in two rounds," and everybody thought Ali or Clay was a punk. Until they meet in the middle of the ring, and you see Liston looking up yeah. at Clay. <clears throat> yep. And then, you know, you if you watch that fight, and I've watched that fight many times, when in the, it's a, I can't remember exactly what round it is because I'm 60, almost 63. <laughs> but but uh, Liston uses a, a stringent on his gloves. And in the fifth, I think it's the fifth round, or it goes in the sixth round, Ali's eyes began to burn. And Liston had done this in the past. There were several other fighters he had fought that they had the same problem, and Liston knocked them out. Well, Liston couldn't. Ali ran around the ring, and Liston, and then Dundee wiped his eyes, and going into the, I guess it was the sixth round, going into the seventh, and once his eyes cleared, watch that round. Ali begins to take Liston apart, and it's really something. And then Liston quits. Yeah. He quit on a stool, and it's really something to see. And growing up here in Florida, my father was very much, when everybody was, Ali's a draft dodger, Ali's bad news. My father, I I remember as a little boy, my father saying, look, I don't agree with what he's doing, but if he's going to do it and he's willing to take the punishment, I respect him. And you have to let him do it. And my dad was the only person I know that didn't call Ali the N-word or... You know, say he, my dad respected Ali, and so watching an Ali fight in my house was a big deal back in the in the day. And when he fought Frazier, who I also met Joe Frazier several times, when he fought Frazier, you know, he made Frazier out to be the Uncle Tom. Yeah, you called him a big gorilla. Yeah, and that's later. He called him a gorilla in the, in the third fight, okay. but in the first fight, he basically called him an Uncle Tom. And nobody had a more black upbringing than Joe Frazier did. I mean, I knew his. I knew his mother. I, I met. I didn't know. I mean, I met her many times. I hung out with his sisters. I knew. I knew them a little bit. And no one had a more black upbringing than Joe Frazier did. And for him to say Joe Frazier 
was that was completely cruel, and that was the beginning, the beginning of because Frazier had helped him, you know, uh, in the in this in the time that he got stripped of the title, he had given him some money, he had helped him, trying to help him get his, his license back to box, and when Allie got his license back to box. Uh, Butch Lewis tells a great story. They're in a limo together, talking and talking. Everything's all cool. And Allie gets out of the car and then, like, just loses it. All right, Frazier, get out of the car. I'm going to whip you so bad. Everybody, you know, and like that. And, he, and they're like, what's wrong with this guy? You know, what, what, you know, but that's, that was the showman. He was who putting Allie on was. a show, yeah. That was the showman. And he wanted to get a fight with, with Frazier. Um, Would you remember they had the uh, computerized fight with Marciano, Marciano and yep. Allie? I did not, did not realize it, but, um, and I guess that aired. I think it aired after, right after Marcy. He'd already died, died. right? Mm-hmm. And, and nobody knew who was going to win it because it's computerized. But but to uh, to actually get the footage that they had of Ali and Marciano boxing, they did actually bring them in to box one another. Yep. Now Marciano had been retired for a while, mm-hmm. and he had put on like fifty pounds, so he had to lose a bunch of weight for it. And just there's watch when you turn, you're, you're, you're fading in and out a little sorry. bit. Sorry. I have in there the column on, on that, that computerized fighting, and Ali said that they they actually had to hit one another. He said, now, Marciano had to drop 50 pounds. He's an old man. But they asked him, who do you think would have won? And I thought he would just say, I would have won. But he said, I really don't know. He said, because I can tell you, he said, even an old Marciano, his punches, I felt them. Huh. He said, so I don't know. He said, getting hit by him was totally different. And they filmed multiple endings for that. Did they? Yes, because there's an ending where Marciano obviously wins. There's a there's a uh, ending where Ali wins. I think there's a one where there's a, it's a draw. I, I I know they filmed at least three endings for that that. Because the one they fight. show was Marciano. The won. one they show is Marciano. I'm not familiar with this computerized well, fight yeah. at all. And then yeah. there was the version where the Undertaker comes in with the steel chair, <laughs> lays them all out. Well, it was not, wasn't it on it was the one where they lower Owen Hart? Yes. Yeah, it was on yeah, World Sports. Sports, and yeah. it was it was a big deal, and it was and Marciano had died in a plane crash about two yeah. weeks or three weeks before. But I was surprised at Ali's humility then, and that's like Bob said. I mean. He was like a button gets pushed, you know, and suddenly he's a different guy. Yeah. So who is he? You know, I I know uh, Muhammad Ali. You know, uh, ironically speaking, of wrestlers like the Undertaker, uh, was heavily influenced by Gorgeous George, Gorgeous George. who was uh, one of the big first pro wrestlers when television became the dominant medium uh, throughout the 1950s. He, Gorgeous George, figured out if people hate me, they will pay to see me get my butt kicked. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, that's, uh, a, that's a. I mean, that, that's a formula that still works today. Still works today. And there's uh, when Cassius Clay met the Beatles. The Beatles came over in 1964 and were touring around. And there's some famous photos of Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay at the time, and John Paul George and Ringo. And allegedly, uh, Muhammad Ali said to him, "All right, boys, smile. Let's make some money." And they they did all those famous <laughs> poses together. Yep. So they were all, everybody had their eye on the prize. Oh, yeah. And they were thinking of uh, having a Wilt Chamberlain Muhammad Ali yep. fight. Yep. Oh, wow. That would have been. Now, they had an Andre the Giant. Weren't they talking about Andre the Giant and Muhammad Ali? Well, he yeah, fought a wrestler no. from Japan, Anoki, uh, and got kicked in the legs for 15 yes. rounds. And it really, <laughs> really hampered. I mean, seriously. But the Chamberlain fight was going to happen. And someone asked him what he thought the outcome would be, and Ali supposedly went, Timber, and that he would, that he would, I don't know how he would have gotten to Will Chamberlain. I mean, my gosh, I mean, there's pictures of Chamberlain with his fist toward Ali, and Ali can't even get to his chin. 
You know, there's no. I mean, and, I don't know and how. Chamberlain beat was, him. And Chamberlain was athletic. He was very athletic. He wasn't a, very a underrated guy. as yeah. an athlete. But um, and you said you had a chapter on Ali in your book. Yeah. Are there any other athletes that, that in your book that you talk about that other than baseball? Oh yeah, because like I said, he wrote a lot about boxing. Okay. So and that was you know I'm I'm well versed in baseball, so I was familiar with all the names and stuff. But boxing was a little more confusing for me because other than just some general big names, because mm-hmm. um, I the Billy Kahn fight, Billy Kahn Joe Lewis, I was like. The first big event, sporting event, after World War II was the Billy Kahn-Joe Lewis rematch. Because Kahn basically had beat him the first time. Yep. And Lewis caught him at the end. Uh, Kahn, so Kahn had basically been running around a lot. And he tried to do it again the second time. And Lewis beat him pretty good there. Um, so there's things like that. So I have a lot about boxing. Um, I have some things about some of the pioneers in different sports. Like Charlie Seaford was the first real black golfer who went on the tour and uh, the hardships he had as far as getting sponsorships and things. Um, talk a little bit about Althea Gibson, the uh, first black winner of, uh, at Wimbledon on the female side. And uh, she was testy. She was kind of difficult to get along with. Again, that was one of the people he admired and respected what she did, but she was kind of tough to get, tough to deal with. have a couple things on Arthur Ashe. So, yeah, there, there's trying to incorporate a wide variety uh, of, uh, of sports. And, and you uh, talked about all your interviews you did for this book. Who, who was your best interview or the most fun interview and who wasn't? I really didn't have any bad experiences. I actually was most nervous. I got to talk to Bob Costas. I interviewed him. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. And I was a classic. You know, I was, I was pumped on that. And I came back and my wife comes home and I said, Paula, so I got to... I got to interview Bob Costas. And she goes, that is awesome. Who is Bob Costas? <laughs> <laughs> but Al Downing was the nicest. Oh, yeah. Um, I've talked to him like three times, and he always, it always goes like an hour. He's so nice, and he talks, you know, tells stories, and they're really interesting. He told me some good stuff on Elston Howard that I was able to include in the book. Um, now I definitely got to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The funniest, though, was Bill Haller, the umpire. I interviewed him because of the six ump because they have six umpires at the crew for a World Series game, right? Even back in '72, when I thought I was going to write a, the biography, I wanted to write about the World Series in '72. So Bill Haller at that time was one of the two surviving umpires of that six-man crew. Profanity like you would mm. not believe, <laughs> but a really nice guy and really fun. And going back to something you said about the slowness of the uh, American League to integrate, he, was, he told me that Joe Cronin, the president of the American League at that time, said to him, you know, we, we keep getting beat in the All-Star game. It's really bothering me. What do I do? And Howard said, you know, you're dragging your feet. The best players are in the National League, and they're black. So, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. But he, he was hilarious, though, talking to him, because he and Earl Weaver, there's... Oh, speaking of profanity, there you go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a friend of mine, buddy from back home, sent me a thing, because we're both Oriole fans, and, uh, and it's somewhere in the early 70s where Weaver comes out to argue, and it's at Memorial Stadium, because the fans are going crazy cheering Weaver, and he and Howard are just F-bombs right and left. I mean, this is horrible, but it's so funny. Because Howard told me that he really didn't have trouble with Weaver. It's just Weaver would never stop. And in this segment, man, Weaver just keeps walking away, walking back, walking away, walking back, just just like he said. 
but he he was fun though. But everybody was nice to me. I got to talk to Billy Williams and Fergie Jenkins. Um, everybody was just really nice. That's awesome. Uh, out of all the chapters in your book, which one would you say you're the most personally proud of? Like, what what's your favorite? My favorite thing that I wrote about was Al Dark. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to even think if that was under. I don't think that was even under. It, in the, it was chapter five. I don't even think that's where progress is. But but the progress chapter is the one I'm most proud of because I really want to hit on that. That um, Wendell went out of his way to celebrate victory. So it's good from the standpoint of getting credibility, but it's also what you need to sustain you in a long fight you know they did yeah. about steve spurrier coaching football mm-hmm. he wouldn't just have the one goal he said you know you don't have a national title as your goal because only one guy can win the national title right you have a series of goals and you celebrate the victories including becoming bowl eligible yeah and i think wendell did the same thing you know as he saw his first columns were pretty belligerent uh, i mean he would basically i mean very in fact, one of the first ones I included in there was he was criticizing. This is now this is like 1937, 1938 when he first started writing. He was criticizing black baseball fans for going to major league baseball games. He said you should be going to Negro league games. They don't want you at the major leagues. They may never want you. Mm. We shouldn't do this. So he was very belligerent. And then you start seeing some of the columns coming soon thereafter where, like, SMU played UCLA in football, went out to UCLA, and UCLA offered to hold back, to, to pull their black players, to say, if this will make you guys uncomfortable and give you trouble for the people back home, we won't play our black players. And wow. the, the coach of SMU, who was a Southerner, said, <clears throat> no, <laughs> we want to play your team, you know? And... um and this guy was, like, so open-minded and went to interview him, and the, and the guy's saying, you know, things are going to change. It's just going to take time. But he's meeting these guys from Texas who are supposed to be <laughs> racist, you know? And that's it's not happening. He's interviewing these baseball players, white baseball players in major leagues who aren't supposed to be willing to play with black guys, and they are willing to play with black people. So what he really tended to do, and what I respect is, he went out and got the story. Yeah. Again, he didn't ask what somebody said about something. He asked, what do you think about this? And consequently, he found, and this is why I think he was right in the Martin Luther King mold, see, things could be made a lot better if we just trust each other a little bit, give each other a break, not, not hurl these epithets around, you know, and acknowledge progress when we have it, and that doesn't mean everything's okay. Yeah. But acknowledge progress when we have it, because we ought to celebrate the victories together. Oh, yeah. Because that's what builds trust, right? Small victories on a a sports team builds confidence and trust. Everybody plays their position, and you you trust that person to play their position. Well, same thing here. If you have an agreement, keep your agreement. You know, if you say you're going to hire, you know, a black person, hire them. You know, don't just put it off. And if you don't want to do it, fine, but don't tell me you're going to do it. You know, we got to have credibility here. So... I think the progress thing, because I really think there's a blueprint in there for something that's still relevant today. I mean, you got to trust each other and acknowledge the good stuff. Yeah, man, that's a a very timely message to be received. Yeah, man, you ain't kidding. What well, what was the time frame as far as putting it together when you started? 
until you got it completed? A year, two years? Yeah, seven years. Seven years? Yeah. Seven. Wow. But a lot of the time I, I spent waiting for things when I was trying to get it through the academic publishing thing, waiting for peer review stuff to come back. That took a lot of time. COVID slowed things down a little bit, too. Interesting. But, um, but so it wasn't seven continuous years. There was a lot of waiting there, you know. Are you looking to write another book in the future? or Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> I do intend to read one in the future. Yes, yes I'm going to read one. <laughs> Didn't hesitate. I'll tell you what I think would be a great book, though. Would be a book on the 04s down here, the back-to-back championships mm-hmm. in basketball. Because not only is that a good athletic story, but those guys, I mean, Horford, Noah. Oh, yeah. Corey that was, Brewer. Man, what a time to be in Gainesville. Billy Donovan. But, I mean, they're interesting guys. Yeah. And what they've done in their life. You know, Noah has foundation out in Chicago doing a lot of work. Horford still playing, but also getting into uh, broadcasting on Spanish networks. Hmm. You know, Torian's come back now and coaching. coaching. Corey's coaching for, I think, the Pelicans or something. Corey's coaching somewhere in the NBA. But those guys are such great guys, yeah. you know. Um, they're, they're great individual stories, and Billy Donovan, of course. So I think that would be an awesome book. But that would be a book that require a lot of travel. You'd probably have to go to Africa or France to talk to some of those people or the Dominican to talk to Horfords. And I, I mean, I, I can barely get up the energy to go to Ocala. Well, once this thing cracks the uh, bestseller list, yeah. though, you know, yeah, you get the Ferrari. We're already, different like story. Like I said, we're already up to like 2,248 of the all-time best go. baseball books. So it's, it's, You'll get there. You'll get there. It's just yeah. a matter of time. I was talking earlier today about that time in Gainesville because yeah. you had the basketball team going back-to-back, the football team, 06, 08. Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> and uh, even to this day, because we're talking about the Gator basketball team, uh, you know, last year was Todd Golden's first year. There seems to be a sense of entitlement amongst Gator fans that well, they're terrible. It's because we put on the orange and blue that somehow <laughs> you know we should be in the tournament. That somehow you know we we should be in the playoffs, and that's just not the case. Everybody talks about Napier and how terrible of a coach he is, and all this stuff. And I saw something today that that made me laugh, where uh, the, some people were criticizing him about the uh, the loss to Vanderbilt, and. Uh, People not realizing that Kirby Smart had pretty much the same fate his first year or whatever, and it's like he's doing okay. He's doing okay. So let let these guys get in there, let their processes take hold, you know, and 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 let let somebody who's really going to get in there and, and coach and really try to change things. Give them that time. They need know. time. Yeah. I told Scott this story when uh, that was happening. I had a baseball card shop here in town. Yeah. And I had a guy, and if I could have gotten paid psychological counseling money on Sunday mornings, I wouldn't be in the financial situation I'm in. <laughs> and I had a guy who would come in any time the Gators lost in football and just crying about uh. it. And I said, what do you want? I said, what do, you, do you mind me talking down the story? I told you a story before. Okay, what do you want? He goes, well, I want to win a national championship. I said, okay, well, let's, let's, let's stop for a second. You got to first, you got to win the SEC. Yeah. I said, now, now you got to, at the time, there were 14 teams in the SEC. So you got a 1 in 14 chance. Well, that's better than that because Vanderbilt's not going to be there. In yep. Mississippi and Ole Miss, South Carolina, Kentucky, South Carolina. Not gonna do it. So you really got like a 1 in 9 chance. Tennessee, LSU always blow it in the long right, run. Right? So. so you got like a 1 in 8, 1 in 9 chance to win the SEC. And he looked at me. I said, now, normally the SEC champion will play for the national championship. Yep. I said, so you've got now a one-in-nine chance to play. So let's say you win the SEC. Now i got a one-in-two chance. 
I said, what more do you want? I said, I said, it, you don't know how hard it is just to win the SEC? And he just didn't see it my way because uh, he thought they should win every year. And I yep. said this to somebody the other day. I said, Florida could win 24 straight national championships of football, suck in every other sport, and they lose the 25th, and the people around here want the coach fired. Well, well, That's a fact. Well, that is an absolute fact because the people in, uh, in, in Alabama were talking about, hell, we got to oust Nick Saban Tell because me. he had a – couple of rough years it's like really nick saban you're gonna you're right. gonna even remotely that guy's leaving when he's ready yeah right not a minute before so, so nil has changed the whole landscape it, it indeed it, it's no longer about i think recruiting. for the worst yeah. uh, of course it that's is. just that's me it's not so much about recruiting it's can you get your boosters to open their wallets yeah. and that is not i do not blame the the kids no. the student athletes because you know if someone so is paying me two million three million four million i'm I'm, I'm going through the highest bidder. <laughs> look, look at the people who complain about Richardson the whole year. Yep. And then he goes pro, and now they're complaining he left. Uh, yep. <laughs> like, hey, yep. look, if someone's going to give you however $14 million. The glass is never going to yes. be full. In your analogy, never, you ever. win 24 in a row and you drop 25 and they want you fired. That is on point. Bob, I remember home court sports. I used to oh. come spend a, a little bit of money with you. Yep. <clears throat> I actually brought a baseball card. Okay. And I'll pass it around. This is It's a replica because uh, I cannot afford the real deal. <laughs> But this is a 1950 Bowman Jackie Robinson. Oh, very cool. Yes. So uh, back in the day when Jackie was playing, uh, there, there was two major companies, Bowman and Topps. And, Tops. and consequently, a player like Jackie Robinson probably doesn't even have, what, 15 cards produced during his playing career? No. But, Whereas um, nowadays, like a Pete Alonzo yeah. or Aaron Judge, they have literally thousands, thousands of, cards of cards produced each year. One thing that's interesting about Bowman and Topps, Bowman now is a part of Topps. Of course, Topps is now owned by Fanatics. But in the 50s, in 52, Mantle has a rookie card. And there's a 53 Mantle. But in 54 and 54, 54 and 55. He's with Bowman. He's exclusively. with Bowman exclusively. So you can't get a tops card from Mickey Mantle that year. So those, those, those years, those companies were at literal war. At Jackie war. Robinson is another player. You can find him in the 49 and 50 Bowman sets, mm -hmm. and that's it. That's those are his Bowman cards. And then you can find him in tops 52, 53, 54, 55, 56, 56 right. before he uh, retired. ultimately retired. Campanella is another guy. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, the, ultimately, Tops was like, man, we just got to buy Bowman. And, <laughs> and that's yep. what they did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. And, and you know, we, we could do a whole show on, on the car business. I'm in. I mean, uh, let's, let's, do, let's do it. Let's do it. But to get back to Scott. We got all quick. of June. We got a book, book for <laughs> So Let's do it. But to get back to Scott real quick. So not to wrap up because we can be here for as long as 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 um nick wants us to be here but when you're when you're writing that book and you're interviewing all these people what was your process scott in in coming up with the articles D did you have a certain path and then maybe the path changed on you the original submission i had of the book was just four chapters uh, negro leagues mlb post-integration uh boxing and issues, which would be like political issues and things like that. So that was a very uh, narrow focus, but going very deep into those subjects. Like the East-West Classic was the Negro League All-Star game. Wendell loved the East-West Classic. So I had a whole chapter devoted just to each article I wrote about the East-West Classic. And 
that was one of the interesting things about the Negro Leagues. Wendell's emotions on that were really mixed. He had a lot of pride in the Negro Leagues because, you know, obviously black people were excluded from Major League Baseball, so they created their own league, and it actually became big business, successful big business, plus it provided a platform for Major League talent. But one of the consequences of integration was no more Negro League. Right, that did right. happen immediately, but it... It in short order. In short order. And Wendell actually thought somehow the Negro Leagues might survive as like their own minor league team, their minor leagues. But part of the problem is, you know, you had this uh, hypersensitivity to gambling. And a lot of the people, their money that came to run the Negro League teams came from like the numbers racket. So these were some nefarious characters who <laughs> would not have fit in right. well yep. with Major League Baseball. So it wasn't going to happen. Whereas, you know, but but Wendell had a hand in destroying the thing he loved, you know. Gosh, so I thought that was a really good story. Yeah. So that was a. De- but when you do a reader, the, the whole idea of a reader, as opposed to like a reader, is just another way of presenting a collection. Sure. Mm-hmm. So you can have the standard, the best of, right? You could do it that way, which is kind of subjective. What do you think the best is? A reader should be something almost like if you're doing a, a somebody brews beer a sampler everything from pale ale to a stout you know see you should at least define the parameters of his writing so what i have in here the different subjects baseball boxing but also the, <clears throat> some of the other sports that are lesser known or some of the political or, or the you know political issues things like that are in there um it's all throughout his career, Pittsburgh Courier, but also the Chicago writings. Uh, he did a couple book reviews for the Chicago Tribune, which is a totally different way of writing. A, a book review is different than a column, and then you have a magazine piece. So all those things are different length, different depth, di- different subject matters. So what a reader should do is give you pretty much an idea of the boundaries that, that, he, that he wrote about, the different, right. the different things. So there should be too much that you don't know, at least that Wendell wrote something about. But you might not know the depth that you would have known like a D-Swift classic because he, he just loved that event. That, type that, of, that event would have been so cool to see. What type of feedback have you gotten from the Wendell Smith uh, family? Uh, very little because um, Michael Marsh, the guy who wrote the introduction, he's the one who had been doing interviews for 25 years out in Chicago. So he got to... Uh, know some of the some of the family so michael was able to send a book finally um to these people he had been talking to you know he, he was so happy to get the material because he had accumulated a lot of information but not nearly enough for a full-blown biography but it was perfect for a 15 to twenty thousand word what i would call bio sketch which is the introduction so he got he would he's the one who knows a lot more about the family <laughs> you remember the family i talked to with uh Wyanella, who has since passed, and she was like 96 years old. Is this his wife? Yeah, second uh-huh. wife, yeah. And I caught her on a bad day, and you, <laughs> you catch a 96-year-old lady on a bad day, it does not go well. I mean, she, <laughs> she was all over me, you know, saying, my doctors told me I shouldn't be talking to you, and on and on. And I got off the phone, and I just thought, you know, I think sometime I just hope I have a chance to have a better conversation with her. 
the next day I get a phone call from her and she's apologizing <laughs> saying, I'm actually supportive of this project. I just can't participate in it, you know. Yeah. But she said her comment was, I can't understand why all the fuss is made about Wendell. It's not like he was George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> <laughs> George Washington and Abraham Lincoln's wives would have said the same yeah, thing. I was going to say, yeah. fellas, exactly. you hear this? You hear what it's like, guys? Come on. <laughs> George, shut up. I don't want to talk about George. You and your yeah. cherry tree yeah. all the time. <laughs> Don't you take the trash out? Honest Abe Maya. I get it. No, that's that's how it goes. Um, we are we are getting up against it here, so, uh, so we're, I'm just going to... Open it up real quick here. You know, is there any any anything in particular uh, you guys want to throw here at Scott before we? Uh... I just want to say how cool it is yep. because I yeah. didn't know a whole lot about him until I got the invite to come right. out. Obviously, I had had this book, so I had a very. I I just think it's cool how you can go throughout history, find one area and just drill down and have it be so interesting. And the connection that your father had. Well, you know, uh, in, in Mexico, yeah, it's proving, what, what proving a small once again, world. and we have talked about it a lot on on the porch itself, the podcast. You know, the what a small world it really mm-hmm. is. Like it, it just just one more example of that. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. It's one of my it's one of my favorite things about bringing people on here and just ha- having conversations. Is uh is is just how small it it always continues to prove to be, and it just never ceases to amaze me. Bob, you got anything you want to say before we? Uh... I I have known Scott for a long time, and just to hear him today, uh, it's overwhelming. Yeah, it, it truly is that he did that much research and he was able to put it into uh, a literary form, and it's just I'm looking forward to to finally getting to read read the book. Uh, and read all the different columns. I'm excited. My question for you before we uh, before we get out of here is, out of all this, out of all the stories of Wendell, everything that that you that you researched, that you that you looked into, you know, the the the, the stories that you uh, received from all these people that you interviewed, what was what was your favorite takeaway moment from all of that? Overall, what do you, what do you look back on and go, man? If 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 for no other reason, I'm glad I got to do this book because of this right here. Uh, I mean, for me, on a very personal level, to be able to talk to guys who I watch play. Yeah. You know, I mean, the only postseason and I got I grew up an Oriole fan from Harrisburg, about an hour and a half from Baltimore, so I probably saw over 100 games at Memorial Stadium. Yeah. But I only saw one postseason game. And that was in 1971, game one of the American League Championship Series between Baltimore and Oakland. And that was Vita's great year where he won, what was it, 27 or yeah. whatever. MVP, and, he started game, Young. and he started game one. And if you told me as a 10-year-old kid that I was going to interview Vita Blue, yeah. and I still have his the message I got on my phone, I'd send him a letter and gave him my phone number, and he called me to tell me he talked to me. And I still have, I mean, I always kept his message. That's cool. And when he passed, I mean, I when we get off here, I, I mean, I could play this for you guys. He is so polite and so nice. Ah. It almost made me just want to cry because I thought, yeah. man. He, he, and I think that's one of the things I learned. He had his demons. I mean, he had cocaine use. And, you know, that may be the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame. 
But he's also a kid from Louisiana. So he's a lot of guys are in the Hall yeah. of Fame. But, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but he's, a, he's a black kid from Louisiana who lost his father early. His father died. Yeah. Um, his, his family's poor. And he really tried to please everybody, you know? Yeah. And he told me Joe DiMaggio told him early on, you got to learn how to say no. Yeah. And Vita never really learned how to say no. Reggie Jackson learned how to say no. Reggie Jackson never had money problems, right? He's a wealthy guy. He didn't have substance abuse problems. And we don't like him because he's a jerk. <laughs> I met Reggie. Yeah, well, I'm saying you pleasant. don't like, you don't like yeah. him either. I mean, nobody I know who met him likes him. Yeah. But you, you, you wonder what's the right thing to do. You know right. what I mean? If you're Vita and you don't say no, look what happens. If you're Reggie, if you say no, you know, that there's problems. And it's just, but, but Vita, the, the interviews themselves and uh, Vita's passing really, really hit me. Like I said, I kept those, I kept those phone messages just where guys call me back like you yeah. would keep your autographs and stuff, you know? Wow. Hey, I get and, that, man. And I said, and, I, and to start from nothing, I these guys didn't know me, man. I just wrote them a letter. I could have been anything, you know, um, making the whole thing up. And they gave me time, and they all said they all ended the same way, saying, um, "If you need anything more, give me a call back." That's wow. great. That's really cool, Scott. Thank you very much for uh, for coming out here in Portville tonight and talking to us, man. I I really appreciate it. It's, I. I really appreciate sitting here listening to a lot of this, you know, just fascinating stuff, man. I appreciate it, man. And uh, love to do it again. We'll do, uh, we'll do a, like we were saying, baseball card yeah, show. Uh, let's do one. Love to do that, man. Um, I may not be able to participate much, but you know that's what Joe's here for. So, <laughs> Scott, congratulations on the book. This, this is this phenomenal. Awesome. Where can uh, where can everybody go to get it? Uh, just your standard places like um, Amazon and. Um, Walmart, I think, has it on their website. He's big time, that Come big. on. And that is the Wendell Smith Reader. Yeah. Scott Pfeiffer, I appreciate you uh, coming down here tonight, man, and hanging out with us. We're going to kick this outro music, ladies and gentlemen. This has been another episode of the Portugal Podcast, episode number 92. Make sure you hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Send us an email, porchmail at porchvillepod.com. Get over there to Amazon and uh, pick up the Wendell Smith reader today, Scott Piper, and uh, give it a read, man. We'll uh, we'll see you next time. Much love. Bye bye.